This meeting is being recorded. Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today I'm joined by Christine Jones. Uh, Christine, as always, it's great to have you here. Thanks. Great to be here. So today we're going to be continuing on in our Worldview-Driven Church series. Over the last several episodes of the podcast, we've talked about having a Christian worldview and how it relates to right beliefs in the church, uh, because the church has to have right beliefs in order to have right practices. And we now turn our attention to the practices of the church, and we begin specifically uh, by discussing how a biblical worldview-driven church uh, sort of, uh, if you will, um, uh, re, uh, reimagines and reworks the liturgical or the, the liturgies of the church. And so I wanted to begin uh, with sh- uh, sharing a quick quote uh, from Francis Schaeffer. And Francis mm-hmm. Schaeffer says, the Christian is the one whose imagination should fly beyond the stars. Um, and then Dr. Noggle, um, David Noggle, who we're doing this series in honor of, follows that by saying, oftentimes it seems that our, uh, meaning our imaginations, barely make it to the ceiling, if that far. This seems especially true when it comes to the impoverished versions of the faith and the stunted ecclesiology that we promote in far too many churches today. Imposing a sacred-secular split on the Christian life and ministry generates the impoverishment and that sort of leads into the idea of liturgical driven worship, because it's meant to, litur- liturgy is meant to sort of be all encompassing of life and the Christian life, not just uh, the one hour a week you spend with other believers in a congregation. And so um, as, we, as we begin moving into this direction, Christine, I want to ask you, how would you sort of in a broad sense define what it means to be either liturgical or just what is liturgy? Okay. So the the meaning of the word liturgy is work of the people, but in terms of just how it it gets played out in our churches, I think, um, first of all, there's the, the broad meaning of it, which is that really anything we do in a worship setting is liturgy. So the churches that I grew up in, in Baptist churches, they were extremely suspicious of anything that seemed like it was ritual. Mm-hmm. And they, so the kinds of uh, traditional liturgies of perhaps a Catholic church or a, or um, an Anglican church or even a Presbyterian church, they would frown upon those. They would say, you're, you're reading these, these, Uh, passages by rote and you're not putting your heart into it and I think that in some cases those are valid concerns but so they would probably define liturgy as anything that seems kind of like it's predetermined it's it's a set form for the worship service but what they may have been missing at the time was that they had liturgies of their own we (laughs) all do so we have the we would have the the um, introduction time and the form of the the amount of singing that you would do. We would have the greeting time. We would have the 30 minute sermon with its three points. We would have our um, altar call at the end. And all of these are forms that we use in a worship service that um, shape how we approach God. They shape um, how we think about the Bible, how we relate to one another. So I, <laughs> this is a, a really kind of long and rambling definition, but I think that we can define liturgy as any form that shapes our worship services. And even when you think 
that you don't have a form? Most places do, because if you didn't have any organization, you would just have a chaotic worship service, which we know is not a good thing. And so every denomination really has its own traditions, its forms, its organization that helps to create a worship environment and hopefully lead people toward God and toward the listening to the word and to worshiping God. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's very insightful. And uh, one of the things that David Noggle mentions is that the, uh, the liturgies of the evangelical church um, have become over time um, essentially a part of American culture mm. and not uh, dissenters from it. Uh, it's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, in a lot of Baptist churches, we reflect the culture around us more than we um, uh, tend to shape the culture around us, if you yes. will. And so um, he mentions in his article, um, part of the liturgy of a lot of evangelical churches is a more casual dress or uh, more modern music or uh, experiential uh, or feeling type oriented services as opposed to intellectual services and, and things mm -hmm. of that nature. Uh, but, but you're absolutely right. Um, you know, when the Protestant churches look at certain things like that uh, have to do with say Catholic traditions and they reject that and they say, you know, we, we don't like this, we just want the Bible or whatever they say. Um, then the next thing you know, they've created their own liturgies and their own traditions yes. that are simply a replacement of the Catholic traditions. And some of them I think are very good and some of them are, are problematic or, or not as healthy. Yes. Um, when we think about having a liturgy, think about having like an order to the service or an order to our walk in the Christian life, um, we need to ask ourselves a number of questions, uh, you know, such as in our worship service, what are we saying about Christ? In our worship services, how are we, um, uh, experiencing the presence of God. Uh, what, what are we praying? How are we praying in our worship services? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what kind of values, uh, are we promoting in our churches? Uh, I, I'm still just sort of floored by, you know, the last five years in the way that Christian nationalism has become <laughs> such a big part of Protestant churches and their identity in the larger culture. Uh, to the point where, uh, you know, some people say, you know, if you're a Protestant, you support Trump or, you know, whatever else. And, um, you know, it's, it's just like, well, you know, wh why is it that way? What, what kind of values are we promoting in our churches that make people think that we should be as committed to the red, white, and blue as we are to Jesus Christ? And uh, to me, that's um, very problematic. So absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I've been in I've been in services where the thing that fired the congregation up the most to, to kind of move them to their feet was it would be Memorial Day weekend or something and we'd sing America the Beautiful and that would be the mm -hmm. thing that got them on their feet. So I, I mean, I've seen evidence of this Christian nationalism, even in places where you maybe wouldn't expect it. It seems like a pretty healthy congregation. And then you kind of see the effect of years of the mm -hmm. of what what happens when we uh for example make uh, a bigger deal out of 
uh, July 4th weekend in our worship services, then maybe we would have, I don't know, the Ascension. Maybe we don't have an Ascension celebration, but yeah. or maybe we don't have Lent, but we have a big July 4th weekend celebration. And in the churches I grew up in, that was certainly the case. Yeah. And you can uh, see the effects of that. Definitely the case in many, many uh, Protestant churches. Um, I was actually, uh, so, I mean, you know, we're kind of in the middle of the month of May right now, mm -hmm. uh, coming towards the end of the month of May, uh, but that means we've just passed Mother's Day, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I saw somebody uh, on Facebook post a couple of weeks ago, uh, how many of you are having Mother's Day sermons in your churches this Sunday? Uh, and the, the person that was asking the question was asking it in a very um, pejorative manner. Like as if to say, if the pastor talks about mothers on Sunday, he's not really doing a good job, a good job exegeting scripture and being a scriptural pastor. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, it's like, well, I mean, you know, you could have a great Mother's Day sermon that's topical, that's also exegetical, that does yes. great justice to scripture and is honoring to mothers. And, you know, I don't have a problem with um, uh, the church recognizing on Memorial Day, you know, that there are. Uh, things to be very grateful for in this country that we live in where we have the freedom to say worship openly and you know mm -hmm. other stuff mm -hmm. like that I think we just have to be careful that we don't worship mothers or careful that we don't worship our country in right. place of worshiping God in those services um, but but again I mean you, you see that and you see how churches oftentimes uh, treat those kind of events and you're just like yeah there's something a little bit irreverent about that mm -hmm. and I'm not sure that it really needs to be that way in the worship service. It's okay that I yeah. love America and that I love God, but God is the central focus of our worship when we come together in worship. And so, right. um, anyway, um, yeah. David Noggle. So, oh, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that one of the things that I appreciate about some of the traditional liturgy, liturgies, for example, when you're following the church calendar for your schedule of readings and sermon topics, is that it kind of protects from some of these issues. And I think we're so accustomed to people using, often using the pulpit as a place to um, e express particular political views that, that people are um, automatically suspicious. So I heard a, a friend of mine who's a, a Methodist minister, he was accused of, uh, of opposing the Trump administration from the pulpit from some of the things he was preaching. Well, he was just preaching from the assigned scriptures for that part of the church year, and it happened to be the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. And the, the congregant was feeling you know, sort of like called out that these, these Beatitudes were not reflective of what was going on politically in that moment. And so mm -hmm. that to me is pretty fascinating that if we actually follow a church calendar and preach through the the um, scriptures for that time the holy spirit is going to use those so i yeah. think in the the churches that i was raised in people were very suspicious of that sort of things saying that it would be better to listen to the spirit but actually the holy spirit can is going to speak through the word of god no matter what yeah um i had a professor one time that said if you ever wonder you know uh, what scripture you should read for your quiet time, just read any of it. It's all inspired. Mm -hmm. <laughs> God's going to speak to you 
through whatever you read, because that's, that's how his word works. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I, I think it is interesting that uh, oftentimes, even when you have something assigned or planned out, uh, it almost always tends to fit with uh, things that are happening around us because mm-hmm. that's, that's how God's word is living and active. And right. that's how it's, uh, you know, part of uh, what we, uh, you know, what we experience and what we learn and how we're convicted and, and all of that. Um, David Noggle in his writings on the worldview driven church uh, made a suggestion for uh, recovering liturgies. And what he said is this, I suggest that contemporary evangelical churches, either as a complement or a fresh alternative, consider setting aside longstanding prejudices, uh, i.e., uh, that sounds too Catholic, I don't want that, mm-hmm. <laughs> and embrace the wisdom and value of the historic liturgies of the church. Yes. And um, he goes on to say uh, that a liturgical worship service is an interactive and ordered form of worship in contrast to a more passive freestyle approach. Um, Mm. I think about churches where people go and they sort of just watch and get entertained as opposed to being active participants in what's happening. Uh, But then he also notes, Noggle also notes that theological, uh, excuse me, theologically, liturgy seems uniquely capable of reflecting the holiness of God, the goodness of creation, and the sacramental character of life and the unity of God's people and the significance of the incarnation and the importance of the body and the authority of the kingdom and the value of space and time and the eschatological goal of history and the role of memory and the riches of tradition all in the worship service. Uh, In fact, what he says is um, a recovery of the liturgy is both theologically grounded and culturally astute. And he argues that it's culturally astute because in the postmodern culture we live in, people are much more open to the transcendent, especially with this emphasis on story. And when you look at a liturgical worship service, you're looking at uh, the larger story of God's redemptive purposes. Um, You mentioned earlier following the Christian calendar. Um, You know, it's interesting that, um, you know, following the Christian readings, uh, it's mm-hmm. interesting that David Noggle also says Advent prepares the saints for the second coming. Christmas celebrates the incarnation of Christ. The epiphany recognizes the revelation of God in Christ at his mm-hmm. baptism. And, uh, you know, Lent, which begins on Ash Wednesday, calls believers to repentance in anticipation for the Holy Week, which is, of course, the, uh, the week of Passover, right? And that, um, if you will, um, commemorates the, the, the life of Christ, but also his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection. And, um, you know, Eastertide or Pentecost celebrate uh, the resurrection of Christ and his defeat of evil. And um, they, they celebrate the installation of the, as the, uh, of the Lord, as the, uh, uh, of Christ as the Lord uh, of the cosmos at God's right hand. And, uh, they celebrate, especially Pentecost, the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you have ordinary common times uh, between different sections of the Christian calendar. And these times help focus on uh, the church's pilgrimage in the world and the empowerment of the Spirit uh, in the life of the church for what the church needs to do uh, then and there at that moment. And so when we look at 
how to uh, sort of embrace sort of liturgies of the church into our worship service and sort of follow this Christian calendar, I think that it's, it's really helpful in also keeping Christians mindful of the presence of God uh, all throughout the year and specifically the work of God in Christ throughout the year. Absolutely. Um, I think that uh, making the the time and the space to observe the church calendar is just so helpful on a in in that you are rehearsing and retelling the whole story of scripture every year every year there's a chance to reacquaint yourself with the full story of Christianity. And so I love that about it. it. It's very instructional for me. I think I, so I was raised in the church and I had been a believer for probably over a decade before I even understood that Easter was actually about the resurrection and not just about the crucifixion because mm -hmm. the churches I was in didn't observe a good Friday service. So you would kind of lump it all into one. Most of the music on Easter Sunday was about the old rugged cross and very mm -hmm. little of it was actually about the resurrection. And then once Easter's over, you don't actually spend time expounding on the resurrection or the importance of the resurrection. It was many years before I understood the, what, what is probably the central uh, teaching in Christianity is the resurrection that this is so important. And it was many years before I understood it because we skipped a step. We would skip the, we'd skip Holy Week. We would skip the Passion and the Crucifixion. We would lump it all together with Easter Sunday, mm -hmm. and kind of a similar situation with Christmas. Um, the recovery of Advent has been such an important part of my, of my spiritual growth, um, because it gives me the space to prepare my heart to be quiet in the midst of a very busy season, to remember the longing for a Messiah, and then to celebrate that uh, incarnation. Um, it, and so for me, the recovery of the Christian year has been a deeply meaningful spiritual practice. Um, and I also find it to be um, a wonderful experience of communion of the saints across time and across the globe to know that if I am following this church year, so are many people around the globe at any, you know, at any given time. So we're connected that way. We're worshiping um, in the same way around the same time. And I find that to be quite powerful. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, there's there's something to being in a local community and saying, hey, we're kind of all in this together. Uh, but there's something sort of as an added bonus to be saying, it's not just us doing this. It's other Christians all over the world doing this at the same time we're doing this. Uh, that, uh, that sort of just helps you feel a little bit more connected, not only to your congregation, but to God's church as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and, and by the way, it gives you more Christmas <laughs> yes. when you, you get, when you get Advent and then you get the full 12 days of Christmas and maybe, you know, we're not in a culture that really celebrates that, but even just, um, 
observing that in my heart and in my own devotional practice gives me a greater joy in Christmas time for a longer period of time. When who doesn't want more Christmas? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's a great that's a great bonus, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, anytime you can you can do more celebration and. Uh, you know, and I think it also helps you keep focused on Christ throughout the whole Christmas season mm-hmm. and not just sort of, hey, it's all about the presence and the gifts and the family, except for this one day. Okay, now we're going to focus on Christ for a few minutes. Now back to mm-hmm. you know, all the other stuff. So um, another thing that David Noggle mentions in recovering the liturgies of the church is the idea of recovering uh, the hours of daily prayer. And uh, he mentions that, you know, morning prayer begins um, the day with praise and dedication. Afternoon prayer expresses continued dependence on God. Uh, and evening prayer uh, offers thanks for the completed day and asks for forgiveness of sins. And then uh, the night prayer expresses trust in God's care for rest and protection through the night. Um, but the nice thing about recovering these prayers is that it helps you remember that all of your day is worshipful and yeah. uh, that you should be sort of focused on the things of God and listening to his spirit and all that stuff sort of surrounding everything you do throughout the day. Um, what are some of your thoughts on just sort of, um, I guess, the, the place and purpose of regular prayer? Well, um, I, I think that one of the things that really helped me get through the most difficult parts of the lockdown, the pandemic lockdown, was a regular practice of prayer and scripture reading. And a, a regular kind of quiet time is something I had grown up being taught, which is the, the time when you read the Bible and pray. But I was taught to approach this in a much more open-ended way. It didn't really matter what I prayed or what I read. And so the problem about with this approach during the lockdown time was that I with so for so many of us and myself included, we really lost a lot of the structures that used to guide our days. Mm-hmm. And so and, and on top of that, there was a sort of pervasive low grade anxiety going on constantly. And so I found it very difficult to pray. I found it very difficult to know what to read. And what I discovered is that when I would follow the patterns of the Book of Common Prayer, it gave some structure to each day. I, I could start with that morning prayer. I, I knew that that was going to be the start of my day. And it also gave me things to pray when I didn't really feel like praying or I didn't mm-hmm. really know how to approach God because of the difficulty of that time. And I found that by um, entering into the the patterns of the liturgy, it was it actually drew my heart toward God, and that became a very important practice in sustaining my faith during during that time. And I still find that to be true. Um, and I and then thinking about the um, the hours, I don't. <laughs> excuse me, there have been some times I've, I've, I've tried to pray the hours, for example, during Holy Week or during Lent, during times when um, I wanted to have a particular focus. And there are some really great uh, prayers that are designed to be read at certain times of day. So one of my favorites is called Fos Hilaron. It's Hail Gladdening Light. And it 
speaks to God as the light, the gladdening light. Um, and it says, now we are come to the sun's hour of rest and the lights of evening round us shine. And we, and, and we praise God as the light, basically. And so when we recover this kind of prayer, then you get to think about God maybe in ways that you wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, with regard to prayer, um, there are a lot of times when we don't know what to say. And I've heard people say, well, if you're reading a prayer, you don't really mean it. Uh, but that's not necessarily true. And sometimes not knowing what to say, but having something you can read allows you uh, to sort of realign your heart, realign your focus. And, you know, as long as you, you know, are committing to the words you're praying and you, you actually mean the words you're seeing, uh, sometimes that, that ends up even sparking additional things that you, you want to communicate with God about in your heart and you know, in your words. And Absolutely. so um, but I think that having the written prayers can be a great catalyst for developing a deeper prayer life. And having the written prayers allows you to say, you know what, sometimes I just don't know what to say, but then I see this and it speaks to my heart, and mm -hmm. it also allows me to commune with God, uh, even though it was penned by someone else, you know, hundreds of years ago, or, or whatever the case is. I agree. And to take it into a modern worship context, I find that this is true as well of theologically rich songs. Mm -hmm. So, and we we need a we need a balance of different kinds of songs in our worship services, of course. But when I was a music minister, there would be many Sunday mornings when I would show up for the practice beforehand, you know, not in a great mood. Um, it was early in the morning. Maybe I had a bad week. Maybe I wasn't really feeling it. But mm -hmm. the practice of singing certain songs would remind me of what I would believe. And by the end of that practice time, I would be I, I, I would I would be fully in with my with my whole heart. But it took it took my entering into the meaning of those songs in order to kind of change my heart for that day. And so I think that the prayers of the liturgy can work in the same way. Yeah, very good. Well, one of the other things that David Noggle brings up is the order of worship in mm. recovering the liturgies. And he, uh, in his studies, uh, looks at the way that people worshiped in the early church uh, there's there's quite a bit of material out there on that. Uh, we know that some of the early church services were, uh, you know, five or seven hours long, and we know that sometimes, uh, and oftentimes, especially in the first century, uh, they were preceded by a gathering together and having a meal, like a, a full dinner together. Uh, but some of the things that are always present in the early worship services of the church include the reading of scripture, mm -hmm. preaching, praying together as a church body, um, taking the Lord's Supper, and um, having a collection, and then giving to the needy. And um, David Noggle mentions that he believes that as Christians, we should be more reverent and more serious in how we consider baptism. Uh, he also thinks that we should um, uh, also, uh, he suggests anyway, uh, reciting the Lord's Prayer on a more regular basis than we often do in our, I mean, you know, in our Protestant churches, I can think of, you know, the church I grew up in, 
we recited the Lord's Prayer usually about once every two years. And, hmm. um, you know, that was always fun to do as a congregation. We didn't do it very often, though. And um, one of the things that, uh, you know, you can take from sort of this order of worship, or at least these elements of worship uh, that are in uh, the early church is that uh, it's, you know, it's good to read scripture. The early church uh, read through in the worship service, Genesis through Deuteronomy every year. Hmm. And uh, they didn't preach on it. They just simply read it. You know, they read a few, uh, you know, well, a section of passages every week, you know, in the church. And then um, they would oftentimes read a New Testament epistle in its entirety. And then they would read a section of one of the gospels, and then they would Mm -hmm. preach on that. And so most of the early church sermons that we have are based on the gospels, because most of the time the preaching was based on the gospel, but they spent a lot of time reading scripture. And it's important, I think, in our worship services to spend time reading scripture. I mean, how many times do we go to the worship service and we read, you know, four sentences in the Bible, and that's all you get in <laughs> our worship service. Uh, yeah. But, you know, there's also corporate singing, and uh, I think it's important to have, um, uh, if, if you will, responsive type readings. And so you can read scripture responsively where someone reads part of a verse and the congregation reads part of the verse, and then someone reads the next, you know, part of the next verse and the congregation reads part of the next verse, uh, or you can do just regular responsive readings, such as responsive prayers. Um, one of the um, uh, liturgical services I was at for Lent a number of years ago um, uh, allowed the, the congregation to have a responsive prayer reading with the, uh, the person leading the prayer uh, so that we were sort of all put in the right mindset for uh, preparing for what we're going to give up, right, what we're confessing. And so uh, someone said, or the person leading would say, you know, we confess to you, Lord, all our past unfaithfulness, the pride, hypocrisy, and imp- uh, impatience of our lives. And then the congregation would say, we confess to you, Lord. And then the person would say, we confess our self-indulgent appetites and ways, our exploitation of other people. And this congregation would say, we confess to you, Lord. And then the person would say, our anger at our own frustration, our envy, of those who's, uh, who are more fortunate than ourselves. You know, and then the congregation, we confess to you, Lord. But, you know, it, and it goes on. But the idea is we're participating in the prayer. We're participating in the reading. We're participating in the worship. Uh, I think Absolutely. that's why it's so important to sing as a congregation, not just to watch the five people with microphones on the stage, <laughs> but to, uh, right. you know, to be singing as a congregation, as a community together. Um, but what are some of your thoughts on just the, the uh, I guess, impactfulness yeah. of this type of worship? I have so many thoughts. Well, when I was a, a Baptist music minister, I incorporated many of these practices into our services. And it was a wonderful time because um, at, the, at the time, our congregation was not singing very much. They weren't participating very much. And I mm-hmm. was very grateful to see them move from a, a rather non-participatory congregation into a very participatory group. And it was a small group. But by the end of my time there, they were participating joyfully and loudly. And I do think that part of that was the incorporation of things like responsive scripture readings. Um, you know, not everybody will catch on to a song immediately, but anybody can read the the bolded parts of the scripture reading. And 
and they did. And so we incorporated that and in. we incorporated in the, the Lord's Prayer and also sometimes the Apostles' Creed. And I would pay close attention to making sure the message of the music, the scripture, the sermon all aligned so that there was a reason for every part we were doing. And I think that that ended up being really helpful. These days, I'm part of an Episcopal church. And I've, it, I still am learning so much about what the different parts of the worship service mean. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to share some that are really meaningful to me. Yeah, please Just do. in terms of the order. So one of the things that we do every Sunday is the service starts with a collect for purity, which is almighty God to you. All hearts are open. All desires known from you. No secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. And so what this is doing is it's preparing the heart for worship. We're asking God to sort of cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we can approach um, the kind of throne of the throne room rightly, right? We're approaching mm -hmm. the experience of worship rightly. Um, so that is a wonderful thing. It's also Trinitarian. When you say that one prayer, we're getting a mention of God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit, all it, at once. And that's kind of the start. So we prepare our hearts. We, we sing songs together. We listen to scripture. And just as in the example you mentioned, you are, we are getting a read through of the, of all of scripture. And there's like three different schedules. There's three different church years, but through the course of three years, you're getting the entire, um, the entire Bible read in the service. Um, and then we listen to the preaching of the word. And then this is the part that to me is so interesting. After the preaching of the word, we do the corporate confession of sin. Mm -hmm. And it is only after that, that we do what in the churches I grew up in would have been referred to as greeting time. But in the Episcopal churches, they call it the sharing of the peace. And actually, traditionally, what you would do in this time, I mean, these days, you just kind of, you, you look around, you say, peace, peace be with you, peace be with you. But in the old days, the idea was that you would find someone with whom you need to reconcile. And it was only after listening to the word, worshiping God, confessing your own sins of being reconciled to God, that you would then go be reconciled to your brothers and sisters. So it's built into the service to have this time of reconciliation with one another. I just find that very powerful. And it is only after that, that we then together approach the communion table. Mm -hmm. And um, and we're able to um, partake of Eucharist um, and be united with one another. So I, I, I love that part, the part about how the passing or the, the sharing of the peace um, is actually part of what prepares you to approach the Lord's table together. Um, and then speaking of the Lord's table, um, a couple of things are important to me there. Mm -hmm. um, one and maybe this just seems like it doesn't matter that much, but in the churches I grew up in, we would um, we would pass uh, the the little wafers and the little tiny cups of grape juice like around the around the room, and everyone mm -hmm. would have their little individual cup. And that's okay, and and there are probably some good hygiene reasons to do that. <laughs> sure. But I actually find the common cup to be quite powerful. And I, I'll confess, I, I partake by intincture, which means that you dip your wafer into the cup. I still don't really like 
actually drinking from the same cup, but it's this, it's still, it's the same substance. It's the same common cup. And mm -hmm. so there's something about being united around the common cup. And I want to tell you a story that to me is especially powerful. This is from, um, this is from Bishop Michael Curry. He's the, he's the Bishop of the Episcopal church in the United States. And in his book, the way of love, he talks about his dad. The first time his dad attended an Episcopal service, America was segregated and this was a predominantly white congregation that he entered into. Mm -hmm. And he was telling who would then become his wife at the time. He was like, they're not going to let us. They're not going to let us um, take from the same common cup. This is segregated America. Mm -hmm. And they did. He was welcome at the table. He got to drink from the same cup as everyone else. And this actually convinced him to become an Episcopalian. But I love yeah, that true. story because it's the power of the common table, the common communion table, where we all get to approach equally. And so yeah. that that is just, a, it's a powerful moment to me. Yeah. And the other part of that, I'm sorry, I, I can oh, talk yeah. about this all day, but the other part of the Eucharist that I think is so powerful is we, it, this came home to me during the lockdown when I was watching these services online and I couldn't even take communion in a physical sense. They would all, there was always a point where they say, having received spiritually, that after we take the communion, we've received spiritually. And thinking about that week after week, um, and maybe I would be at home with my like coffee and my little <laughs> piece of toast <laughs> instead of <laughs> the wine and the bread, right? It helps me to think about the Eucharistic nature of all of God's gifts. To see Alexander Schmemann put it that he said that the world is shot through with God's presence. And so the thing about taking Eucharist every week and thinking about how we have received spiritually of the body and blood, it helped me to see all of the world that way as an opportunity to experience God's presence. So that's it. Wow. That's my spiel. <laughs> no, that's very good. I, I really appreciate your story um, uh, uh, concerning Michael Curry as well, because um, a lot of times in Protestant evangelical churches, the, the uh, Lord's Supper is observed, you know, once every you know, quarter or every couple mm -hmm. months. They don't do it every week, typically. And um, when it is observed, you know, people are often told, Think about things you need to confess to God, but they make it more individual mm -hmm. than they do about communal, right? Mm -hmm. And um, part of the uh, part of the um, Lord's Supper is that you are supposed to be communal in taking it, right? Uh, I mean, Paul says, "Wait for everybody to get there," you know, um, because you want the whole body present, uh, and then. Um, when when you're taking it you're supposed to be reminded that you're all taking together because you're all equally saved by the same blood of christ mm -hmm. and in him there is no distinction of you know this person's better than that person or more saved or more spiritual or whatever else i mean um it's it reminds us that we're all equally saved by the blood of christ and as such we are all one in in unison in the faith and so um i feel like that part uh, you know the the idea of the equality of everyone in the room is mm -hmm. oftentimes missed in evangelical churches 
uh, because they're focused more on, you know, is am, am I in a good place with God to take this? Not am I in a good place with everyone in the church around me to take this? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and, and in order to be in that kind of a place, the people around you at church, I think it, um, it helps to, uh, you know, say, say peace to one another beforehand. But I think it also helps to, to take communion more regularly uh, so that uh, you're constantly evaluating, you know, what is my relationship with the other people here? You know, how am I interacting with everyone else? And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, what are we doing to serve one another and share with one another throughout the week or, you know, between, between gatherings and all that. So, yeah. Oh, and um, we, so there's one more thing I wanted to mention and it's, it's a little bit um, off topic now, but, you know, we started this discussion early on talking about um, the rise of Christian nationalism in our country and some of the ways that we've been more shaped by the world, um, mm-hmm. perhaps. And one of the things that I found particularly powerful, uh, as, again, especially during the, these pandem- the pandemic, especially during 2020, is that when we do the prayers of the people, we pray for our leaders by name. So every week, no matter how I felt about their policies or their positions or things they had done, every week I was saying that I'm that I pray for Donald, our president, and mm-hmm. Greg, our governor, and now we pray for Joseph, our president. And there's something I don't know why they do it by first name, but there's something so humanizing about thinking of that person by their first name. And by praying for them, we're going to pray the same way for a president, no matter who is president. We're going to pray the same way for a governor, no matter who is governor. And we're going to do it every week. So that even when I was feeling like, oh, I don't really want to pray for this. Well, you're going to do it. You're going to pray for them. (laughs) And that was very helpful for my heart as well. (laughs) I think that's very important, you know, Uh, and and the, the first name does humanize people. And when we when we focus on, you know, even when we talk about, you know, say like right now, so right now there's the whole big Johnny Depp, Amber Heard thing going on. And mm-hmm. it's easy to talk about all that they're experiencing and all that they're sharing in the trial without recognizing that these are two people whose lives have been shattered by the mm-hmm. way they've treated one another. And, um, you know, because you just sort of see them as this sort of this thing out there, you know, and you're not really humanizing them, but to step back and say, you know what, we need to pray for, um, you know, we need to pray for these guys. It, it mm-hmm. humanizes them. Uh, I, so I ascribe to the Hollywood prayer networks monthly newsletter. And, um, so they had a big section in their newsletter this morning about how it's important to pray for the celebrities and their marriages and their, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the celebrities going through divorce. Uh, because it's hard on everyone, and it's especially hard when you're on a public stage. Yeah, and, um, wow. You know, but it, the, the point of it was to try to, again, you know, sort of humanize the people and not just sort of make it this, you know, hey, this is a good topic for discussion. And when you when you look at the government, you know, and our leaders, local leaders, um, you know, state leaders, national leaders, world leaders, uh, you know, I mean, there are people that should be, and rightly so, you know, praying for, um, uh, you know, everything happening in Ukraine and Russia, but there's people that should be saying, and God, you know, help Vladimir 
make better decisions or you know yeah. whatever else, right? Yeah. Uh, but you know, you don't want to humanize the villain. And um, the thing is, is that villains are still human. <laughs> and mm. uh, as it turns out, everybody's a villain sometimes. And so, uh, you know, there's always going to be people that we disagree with. And whether we agree with them or not, it doesn't in any way negate how we should ask for God to use them or change them or bless yeah. them. Um, and yeah, so I, I really appreciate yeah. that. I think that's a, a really great uh, additional thing to talk about and important for us to do as congregations uh, because you know I'm assuming not everyone in your church is a Democrat or a Republican <laughs> no there, uh, I, I mean there are many different yeah you know yeah <laughs> and it's the same in our churches you know um, so I, I kind of joke because I'm I'm more of a, like a libertarian uh, and uh, I, I tend to not really vote towards either of the major parties uh, but um you know, I, I'm always feel like I'm kind of like the odd one out, you know, in those mm -hmm. circles that I'm in. But, uh, you know, it's important for us to be unified together, even if we don't have the same political ideologies, mm -hmm. uh, because we're unified in Christ. We're not really unified in our politics. We're, we're unified in our faith. That's right. That's right. So, so I, I guess if I could sum all of this up, I would say that um, for me, what the liturgy has done is it's given me a path forward to practice my faith well, even when my feelings aren't where they should be um, regarding whatever it is. Maybe maybe I'm experiencing doubt, or maybe I'm or maybe I'm feeling negatively toward another person in the congregation, or or toward a political leader, or whatever it is. But the practices of the traditional liturgy have helped to reorient me toward God, toward other people, and um, toward an attitude of love, even to, to those with whom I disagree. And that's been so helpful um, because I think we all know that as you, maybe when you're young, you can have a lot of fervor and excitement and passion about God, and maybe you will feel more inspired all the time when you go to church. But as the troubles of life kind of pile up, it can be easy to lose some of that initial fire. And mm -hmm. so I find that far from um, becoming just a ritual or a rote that replaces that relationship, instead, the liturgies have helped to realign me into the proper relationship with God over and over again. And I'm so thankful for that. Yeah, very good. Uh, for those of you guys who are listening, you know, I'm not suggesting, and neither was David Noggle, that you all abandon your evangelical churches. No. But if you're a leader, especially in an evangelical church, I implore you to think about how can we in our congregation begin to implement some of the liturgies and some of the liturgical things that the church has embraced for centuries, um, not so much so that we can be like everybody else, uh, but so that the people in our congregations can continually be realigned in their thoughts, in their, in their hearts with Christ and his lordship and the word of God and um, the community of the saints. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, again, it's not just so we can imitate other people. Uh, the, recovering the liturgies should help us to grow closer to the Lord in our walk of faith. 
And uh, I think that it's uh, to a large extent, the lack of liturgy in Protestant churches that has led to the mass exodus of people 40 and under. Mm. And so I, yeah, I would agree with that. And the number of ex Baptists that are in my current Episcopal church is pretty impressive. So, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. I, you know, there's, there's a couple of churches I'm familiar with that are not Baptist churches. And uh, I think even half the staff members in a couple of those churches were Baptist at one point in time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, so again, I'm not saying leave your denomination, but if you are in a position of leadership, do what you can do to realign some of the things your traditions are doing to more closely emulate what it means to be, you know, biblically worldview driven, you know, to think, mm. you know, to, uh, to be aligned with how to think Christianly about how to do worship and how to do church and how to live out the lives of the congregants, you know, to help the congregants live out their lives in um in a way that continually brings honor to christ and shows them to be part of worship in everything they do every day and so uh for those of you guys listening again as always thanks for thanks for your time christine thanks for being on the show today and thank you scott next time oh go ahead bye (laughs) all right bye-bye